Love That Neighborhood is now on Patreon, which offers exclusive bonus content to members. For just 10 bucks a month, you can unlock bonus interviews, live streams, ebooks, and more. By becoming a Patreon member, you're helping us make more of the podcast content that you love and supporting our Urban Missions program. It's really easy to join. Just go to patreon.com slash love thy neighborhood. We'd love to have you with us as we explore discipleship and missions in our modern times. Again, go to patreon.com slash love thy neighborhood and sign up today. Love thy neighborhood. Okay. Oh, cool. Oh, definitely. <laughs> awesome. Discipleship and missions. Mission. For, For modern, modern times. So two weeks ago, an extensive report came out regarding how sexual abuse had been handled within the Southern Baptist Convention. Yeah, and extensive is a good word to use. I mean, this report was 288 pages, and it is basically the written findings of a third-party investigation from an organization called Guidepost. Okay, so for those that don't know, can you kind of give them some backstory? What's the context? What were they looking into? Yeah, okay. So specifically, this report is looking into the SBC's leadership group known as the Executive Committee. So the SBC, they have their, you know, annual meeting that is the literal convention part of the Southern Baptist Convention, where everybody gets together, they discuss things, they vote on things. But during the rest of the year, when this meeting is not in session, it's this executive committee that is responsible for handling the SBC's proceedings until the next year's meeting. So this report was looking at how has this executive committee handled cases and allegations of sexual abuse that had been brought to their attention over the years. Yeah, and the findings that came out were way worse than I thought they were going to be. I knew they were going to be bad. They were way worse. Yeah, they were awful. Yeah, okay, so for example, for years it was discovered people were bringing these allegations of, hey, my pastor abused me, my youth pastor abused me, hey, this person in my church abused me, and they're bringing these things so that the Southern Baptist Convention, the executive committee, would do something about it. And this report found over and over and over again that instead the executive committee really fixated on legal liability. We're not going to take action, and we're not even going to look into it, because if we look into it, we're going to be legally liable for it. So over and again, it was seen that the executive committee just chose to protect themselves legally instead of protecting and standing up for real victims. Well, and not only that, but when some of these allegations were made, it was also found out that this executive committee basically tried to scapegoat in some instances by saying that, well, you know, SBC churches are autonomous, so issues like this need to be handled at the local church level, not by us. You know, I mean, this whole thing, it, it's kind of a response that to me reeks of like when Pilate is washing his hands of like Jesus's crucifixion and he's like, well, I'm not responsible for any of this. You all handle it yourselves. Yeah. On top of that, the big thing that people wanted for years was give us a database, give us a database where Every time an allegation is made and it's found to be credible that that information is then distributed out to the SBC churches so that we can know 
who these people are so they don't move church to church. But instead, the executive committee responded and said, well, legally, we can't do that. And then guess what Guidepost Solutions finds? They find a database that the executive committee had been keeping a secret database of all these names and all these allegations, but they were not distributing those names out to the churches because they didn't want to be legally liable. So that means that all these folks that were abusing people, many of them were remaining in ministry and just moving on to new churches. It's horrible. Yeah. I mean, it's just terrible. And again, you know, the report is 288 pages. There's tons more evidence, things that they found. We're going to leave some links in the show notes if you want to do some more looking into what all was found in this report. But I just want to take a second and acknowledge, like, this is a huge deal. I mean, stories about this report have been on CNN. They've been on The New York Times. Like, this is national news right now. And, I mean, the SBC, this is the largest Protestant denomination in the world. And this is what we're being known for right now. Yeah, it's really, really sad. Like, my wife and I have just sat around, you know, reading these reports, looking at these uh at this evidence that has come out and like we are just filled with like so much sadness for how many victims have just been unrepresented not protected not cared for and at the same time we're also really angry we're really angry that people would abuse their power that they would look after themselves and that they would hide behind the cowardice of saying well we're just looking out legally for what's best for us The Pharisees were the ones who always had questions of legality. Jesus was always about what does love look like? And the executive committee, they really failed people on this. Yeah, and it can be hard, you know, as Christians, one of the things that we ask ourselves, you know, on this show is, okay, where's the gospel? Where's the gospel in this topic or within this issue? And when it comes to sexual abuse, sometimes it's really hard to see the gospel. And sometimes you might not see it right away. Sometimes it takes time. But I do think that it is there. So in light of this report, what I'd like to do is actually revisit our episode on where the gospel meets sexual abuse. So this is an episode we originally aired back in November 2018. And it looks at some of the same kind of scandalous stuff that was found in this report. It looks at the very real consequences and trauma experienced by survivors of sexual abuse. But I think it does also answer the question, where is the gospel in this? And how does Jesus inform our response to abuse? And of course, You can probably tell from the subject matter that this is an episode for mature audiences. It also may be a trigger if you've experienced abuse, so please listen with discretion. And we did change some names in order to protect identities. So here's episode number 16, where the gospel meets sexual abuse. When you hear the term sex offender, what typically comes to mind? A creepy middle-aged man who spends his day lurking around school playgrounds? Or perhaps you think of someone who drives around in a shady white van, offering candy to children. And images like these do have some truth to them. It's why we teach our children stranger danger. Because there are strangers out there who do abuse people. But most of the time, 
it's not the strangers who pose the danger. In fact, 90% of abuse happens from someone we already know. And sometimes, the people we know, they're right within the walls of our church. You're listening to the Love Thy Neighborhood podcast. I'm Jesse Eubanks. And I'm Rachel Zabo. Every episode, we hear stories of social justice and Christian community. And today's episode is where the gospel meets sexual abuse. And I'm just going to be honest, Jesse, this has got to be the hardest episode we've ever done. Like, this topic is so heavy. I totally agree. I mean, talking about sexual abuse, it is just really difficult, but it's also really important. And today, we're going to see that sex offenders aren't who we think they are the real damages of abuse and how we as God's people can respond. And we do want to note that though abuse can happen at any age, our stories today are specifically about child sexual abuse. And also, there's a couple scenes in our story that are disturbing. We'll give you a heads up. Welcome to our corner of the urban universe. Bill Cosby, Larry Nasser, Harvey Weinstein. Recently, our news was dominated by sexual abuse allegations against recently appointed Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh. Yeah, but it's not just the news. You know, the church is full of these kinds of stories, too. I mean, the Catholic Church has been facing sex scandals in the public eye since 1985. Yeah, but this isn't just within the Catholic Church either. I mean, even within the evangelical world. You've got Paige Patterson, you've got Bill Hybels, you've got Sovereign Grace Church, all of which have been accused of various forms of sexual misconduct. Now, I mean, an allegation is an allegation. It could be true or false, and only time will tell whether it is true or false. But when they are true, that's really serious. Yeah, and what we've seen, you know, time and again when these stories come out in the church is that the church either tries to sweep the abuse under the rug or... They just want the victims to be forgiving or they, you know, take a defensive posture and they're trying to just protect their leadership. And I'm wondering, like, is that the way God responds to abuse? Well, you're in luck because God is actually pretty clear about how he responds to those who abuse others. In the book of Ezekiel, God tells the prophet to speak judgment against the leaders of Israel. And he's judging them for being abusive. They were taking care of themselves and not taking care of the people like they were supposed to. And it's clear God is angry to the point where in chapter 34, verse 10, he says, I now consider these shepherds my enemies. I will take away their right to feed the flock. The fat and the strong I will destroy. God's not playing around, is he? No, he's not. Another verse uh, often cited in regards to abuse is Matthew 18. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. God clearly does not take abusing and misleading people lightly. But the thing is that when it comes to the church, so often we do take it lightly. I mean, let me let me tell you a story about what I mean. And this story is about a woman named Meg Hostetter. So Meg grew up in a small town, and this town didn't have a lot, but one thing that it did have was several churches. So here's Meg. A lot of people were in those churches. That was kind of the 
that kind of set the social temperature for, for the community. In small towns, there's not a whole lot to do. So my church in particular um, had a pretty vib- vibrant youth group. Now, it's important to note, like, these churches were good churches. Like, they taught scripture, they loved one another. I mean, even the youth group that Meg mentioned, it was a solid youth group. And since there wasn't much else to do anyway, Meg spent most of her time at this youth group. Yeah, we did it all. We had Bible study. Um, we did a spring break trip to the beach. We would do lock-ins at the church. Anytime there was a youth group event, like Meg was there. In fact, she was so involved that she even got invited to join this group within the youth group. It was kind of a student leadership position. And then there were more meetings to go to before events or after events. And so there were more planning times. Basically, Meg lived and breathed youth group. And according to her, part of what made the youth group so attractive was the youth pastor. Very charismatic leader um, that you just want to be with. It's really fun that attracts both young people and adults. So Meg loves spending time with the youth pastor and his family. Like his wife was super sweet and they had two young daughters that Meg loved to babysit. Because we lived in the same neighborhood, I would go early for youth events that were held at their house. I would stay late after helping clean up or whatever. So I was in their home quite frequently. You know, as Meg was telling me all this, it was sort of uncanny how much her experience is similar to my experience. Like this sounds like my youth group. Like I was part of a student leadership council. I hung out with the youth pastor all the time, hung out with his wife all the time. Yeah, I I just have to say, like, I'm a little confused because I'm hearing all of this and like there's nothing alarming in this. It doesn't really sound like any kind of story of sexual abuse or anything. Yeah, well, but you said it yourself at the top of the episode. Ninety percent of abuse happens by people we already know, which means that sexual abuse may not happen the way that we think it does. And just a note for our listeners, the scene you're about to hear does get disturbing. So one day, the youth pastor is dropping Meg off at her house, as he would frequently do. And as they're driving, he looks over at Meg and he says, hey, would you like to try driving the car? And they're like, wow, you know, you're 12 years old and that's pretty cool to be able to drive someone's car, you know, on a backcountry road. Meg trusts her youth pastor. She thinks, you know, he's letting her do something really special. And so naturally, she says, yeah. He would allow me to drive his car, but I sat in his lap. And while Meg is sitting in her youth pastor's lap, he begins touching her inappropriately. And I froze because it was shocking. Hold on. Can I? I'm not... I'm not trying to be inappropriate. I'm just trying to clarify. Can you can you help me understand exactly like what's happening? Like is he is he holding her hand? Like is he trying to fondle her? Like what's happening right now? Yeah, so when I asked Meg to clarify what she meant by inappropriate touch, she actually didn't want to specify. So we don't know the details of what happened, but what we do know is that it was so traumatic that she didn't want to go into detail about it. I, I knew that I was incredibly uncomfortable. I was embarrassed. It completely caught me off guard. It was so out of place and so didn't match everything else. So what did Meg do? Well, I mean, she's 12. She goes home and she tries not to think about it. And because Meg respects her youth pastor, 
everything got really confusing really fast. It's so strange how a 12-year-old mind thinks because I wasn't thinking about myself and I knew that I didn't want to embarrass him, which was really weird that I wanted to protect him and I wasn't thinking about protecting myself. And I think he knew he didn't have to tell me not to tell because his reputation was so good with everyone. Everyone loved him so much. He didn't have to tell me not to tell. He knew I wouldn't. Now, it's hard to have stats on sexual abuse because most people don't share it. But it is estimated that only about 30% of sexual abuse victims will ever tell anyone what happened. And it's also estimated that the majority of those instances are by accident and not on purpose. If I told it would break his family, what would his daughters be like having knowing that their father is like this? What would his wife be like knowing that her husband is like this? What would the church, like it would break the church, it would just... In my mind, it was, if I keep secret, everything stays together. But if I say something, everything gets broken. You know, it's almost like the first critique, right? Why didn't you come forward earlier? You know, if it was true, you would have come forward earlier. We, like, put all this skepticism on people that are potential victims because we we don't think that they moved at the right pace. But I'm hearing, like, I'm hearing Meg describe all of the internal pressures. I'm thinking back to when I'm 12 years old and I'm going, I wouldn't have come forward. Yeah. So what she does is she just tries to pretend like it never happened. I think one one of my coping mechanisms was just diving into so much and staying so busy that I didn't have to reflect and I didn't have to think. I have to keep this facade up that everything's okay. Because if I say that it's not, then other things will fall apart. But she's now very wary of her youth pastor. I would try my best to get out of those circumstances in the future and try not to take rides. Or if he was like, let's, we can take this long way back to the house. I'd say, no, I really have homework to do. I have to. So I would find a way to not get in that situation again. But then he would find other situations. So it wasn't just this one time like this kept happening. Yeah. When there's lock-ins at the church and it's you play hide and seek and everything's dark you would find opportunities where it started as something fun, like we're just playing this game, and then it turned into something awful. Um, when, when I was babysitting was when it was the worst. And just to note, this scene also gets disturbing, but this will be the last disturbing scene in this episode. So the abuse actually culminated with attempted rape. So one day, Meg was babysitting the youth pastor's daughters, and while they were taking a nap, he came home, and he was on the verge of raping Meg in his home when the phone rang, and he had to stop what he was doing because if he didn't answer the phone, it would wake his daughters up. And that incident happened two years after the initial car ride in his lap. So Meg's youth pastor abused her for two years. How does a child endure something like that for two years? Like, the level of evil and destruction. How does a kid deal with something like that for two years? And my other question is, like, how in the world is this going on for two years and no one knows anything about it? Yeah, like, there was no suspicions about the youth pastor. Like, no one thought, oh, man, this guy looks like a shady guy. Well, I mean, I guess this is what people are talking about when they talk about the idea of grooming. The grooming process is ultimately the the methodologies that offenders use to uh, gain access to a child. This is Boz Chavijan, 
Boz is a former prosecutor, and he also happens to be a grandson of Billy Graham. And grooming is something pretty well known in the legal community. A lot of times some will will use the term testing rather than grooming. You know, they begin to do little things to test the family of the child, to see if the family trusts that individual. Because that's really critical. I mean, if if you don't have the trust of the family and guardians of that child, it becomes really difficult for that offender to uh, to access the child. So gaining trust can take a lot of different shapes. Some people might hug a child more than necessary. Some people might buy gifts for a child. Some people might offer to take a child on a trip that their parents can't afford. Some people might be really faithful servants in children's ministry. According to Boz, really there's no one way that grooming occurs. You can look at certain behavioral patterns and say, okay, there's, here are common behavioral patterns, but not, you know, these are just common ones. That doesn't mean that if somebody's not doing this, they're, they're, not, they're not offending. Grooming is a very calculated and thought out process. I mean, in hindsight, Meg's youth pastor groomed her and her family. I mean, one, he's a youth pastor, so there's a level of trust right there. But then he also lived in the same neighborhood. He gave Meg leadership roles. He had Meg babysit his kids. He gave her rides. Yeah, and I think, you know, had Meg's church had some level of understanding about grooming, maybe there would have been some red flags. But, you know, when it comes to sin, and in particular sexual sin within the church, oftentimes we just want to be ignorant and silent. And that's why many churches, just like Meg's, you know, they don't have structures in place to help prevent something like this from happening in the first place. Because if we don't talk about it, then obviously we also can't put a plan in place to prevent it either. And so the abuse went on for two years in silence. And then when Meg was 14 years old, that silence was suddenly broken. But it wasn't broken by Meg. We'll be right back. Hi, listeners, it's Anna, media editor. Here at Love Thy Neighborhood, we partner directly with local nonprofits right here in Louisville. Over the past seven years, our interns have provided over 130,000 work hours free of charge to local ministries. My name is Christy Robison, and I am the director here at Hope Place. Hope Place is a Christian community development center seeking to make hope tangible through the body of Christ in South Louisville one of the most internationally diverse places in the city. They provide youth and children's programs, adult English classes, and engage actively in the community. Christy shared with me how our interns support the work of the ministry at Hope Place. We absolutely love our LTN interns. Um, And coming from the nonprofit world, it can be super challenging to get staff and the LTM interns really fill in those gaps and not just fill in the gaps, but they bring so much passion um, to what they do. And LTN does such a good job of training them um, to get ready to just be interns here. And so they um, definitely help in, in so many of the areas um, that we need help here um, at Hope Place. If you want a hands-on experience of missions in our modern times, come serve with Love Thy Neighborhood. We offer internships for young adults ages 18 to 30. Through the areas of service, community, and discipleship, you'll grow in your faith and your life skills. Learn more at lovethyneighborhood.org. Love Thy Neighborhood Podcast. I'm Jesse Eubanks.
And I'm Rachel Zamo. Today's episode is where the gospel meets sexual abuse. We're following the story of Meg, who's been sexually abused by her youth pastor for two years. But now the abuse has been brought to light. But not by Meg? Is that right, Rachel? Yeah. So what happened then? And then a couple of girls actually came forward and pressed charges. Um, I had no idea that he was doing similar things to other girls. I had no idea. So it turns out these other two girls in her youth group were also being abused. It wasn't just Meg. You know, in fact, some reports say that a male sex offender who prefers female victims will abuse an average of 52 girls. Oh my gosh, that's horrific. So because these other girls said something, did Meg finally come forward and say something too? Well, so Meg's dad is an elder at the church, and so when all this came out, he wanted to know if this had been happening to anyone else. He sat down with me and said, hey, did any of this happen to you? And I was like, because the stories were almost identical. His grooming techniques were the same. And of course, I lied to my parents, and I kind of was waiting to see how it played out with the the other people that came forward. So what happened then? Well, so these other two girls pressed charges, the youth pastor was put on leave, and then the court date arrives, and Meg is actually feeling pretty hopeful. I was so relieved that they came forward, and I thought, it's over. Like, they will catch him, he will be gone, and it's over, and I don't have to tell anybody anything. Like, I can just move on with my life. But that wasn't exactly the way things played out. They didn't believe the girls, even though their stories were eerily similar to how they were groomed. It was their word against his, and the charges were dropped. I don't understand. If you've got two girls and their facts are nearly identical, and they're both making this accusation, why is the judge not believing them? Well, like Meg said, it was the youth pastor's word against these girls' word. And when it comes down to either a teenage girl is lying or a youth pastor is lying... I mean, obviously, you're going to go with the teenage girl. Okay, well, then that brings me to my next question, which is this verdict is saying that these children made up this accusation. And I wanted to know, what's the reality of that happening? What's the likelihood that these kids are making it up? So, again, here's former prosecutor Boz Chavijan. You know, the research that's been done on this uh, will demonstrate that false allegations of child sexual abuse occur anywhere between 1% and 7% of the time. Okay, so here's what that means. That means that uh, the idea of a false report being filed by a kid, that is slim to none. It virtually doesn't exist. It's a statistical anomaly. So I asked Boz why so often people don't believe a child when they report. Uh, It's much more comfortable in most churches to uh, gravitate towards a narrative that this child is either mistaken or is making something up, rather than, oh my goodness, this person who I always loved and admired, I'm discovering is not that person at all and is somebody actually who has has abused and harmed a child. He's a criminal. We don't like that. So uh, if there's anything we can do to gravitate towards the narrative that we, that we prefer and are more comfortable with, we will do. And that is, to me, what happens so oftentimes in the church. Yeah, and the crazy thing is, okay, not only did the church not believe these girls that came forward, but actually... Once it was, you know, decided that the youth pastor was innocent, they all went out and celebrated. So one of the church members owned a restaurant that Meg actually worked at occasionally. And so 
once everything was cleared and all the charges were dropped and everything, they were like, hey, let's go have a party and celebrate our youth pastor. So they all go to this restaurant and Meg actually ends up serving her abuser at his victory party. Like the level of injustice in that is terrible. This man that is secretly abusing young girls and then Meg has to sit there and pretend to have a smile on her face and serve the guy and that he would go along with, yeah, let's go eat at this restaurant, knowing that one of the girls that he's abused is going to serve him. That's that is just evil. That's terrible. Yes, it is. But the reality is I don't actually know what the attitude of the church was because Meg requested that everyone in the story remain anonymous. So I don't even know the name of this church. I was not able to contact them to ask them about this event. But at the time for Meg, you know, any hope she had that this guy would be caught is gone. I thought, well, if they're not going to believe them and they were amazing girls, then then surely nobody would believe me. And so Meg continues to be silent. One, at her age, who does she go to? So this is Colleen Ramser. Colleen is a therapist who specializes in caring for victims of trauma and abuse. And, and if this person is in a position of power, it's not uncommon for someone to feel like they don't have any resources or options. And if they speak out, what that's going to do to the overall community. So Meg just continues pretending like everything's OK. She just keeps herself busy so she doesn't have to think about it. But even though she's doing a really good job of hiding it, the reality is the abuse is still affecting her. Our, our brains and our bodies weren't meant to go through these things. And so when we do, um, there's a lot of shame, a lot of emotion, a lot of confusion, um, some detachment. Um, they can feel very anxious. And, you know, the other reality that Meg was facing was the fact that her abuse happened by a spiritual leader. And according to Colleen, I mean, that adds a whole other layer. I mean, the amount of evil that is in the abuse from a spiritual leader. It's one thing to look at, say, a dad, my dad, who is abusive throughout my childhood, who may not be a believer. It's another thing to look at someone who we see as a gateway to our only hope, being Christ, being a, someone who abuses me. And so then God becomes this sort of detached figure that doesn't care. And even at just 14 years old, I mean, this is what Meg was experiencing. It completely wrecked my spiritual life. Huge issues with trust, but the bigger issue of trusting God. I, I remember, remember thinking, when I get old enough, I am going to get as far away from this town as I can and as far away from the church as I can because the church isn't a safe place. And people who say that they follow God are hypocrites and are not safe people. And the people that should be the safest aren't. Yeah, you know what's really sad in this situation is that it has become so common to turn on the news and to hear reports of religious leaders sexually abusing people that they are supposed to be caring for. And I think that for a lot of us, like, we just fail to realize the very real impact that those events are going to have on somebody's faith in God. How is it possible that God is good? Why didn't he show up and care for me? 
if the abuser was the one that taught me these things that are supposed to be true, but the abuser treated me the way that they did, well, then maybe all these things aren't true at all. I just think that we just fail to realize like the lifelong implications of what happens when somebody who is a spiritual authority to us abuses us. Well, so true to her word, you know, once Meg was old enough, she left. She graduated high school and she moved away to college. And honestly, at this point, thinking about her abuse isn't really part of her everyday life. I mean, you know, the more that you practice something, the better you get at it. And Meg had had a lot of practice of hiding her pain. But according to Colleen Ramser, the hiding isn't going to work forever. Disassociating from it where the pain kind of gets put aside. It's still there. It's still stored in the body, but it gets put aside in order to survive. And it, that particular skill is helpful in the moment by masking it and pretending like everything's okay. You're able to go to school, you're able to get your degree, and you're able to, you know, move on. But at some point in your life, the body begins to present these symptoms that we can no longer avoid. So when Colleen talks about your body presenting symptoms, it's helpful to think of it like this. When you're stressed out, those symptoms, they turn inward. So maybe your thoughts are racing or or you find yourself emotionally overreactive. But also, when you're stressed out, those symptoms go outward into your body. It's going to show up in things like maybe your heart races or you have a headache. So the idea is that stress has both an inward expression and an outward expression. It shows up emotionally and it also shows up physically. And all of the same is true with abuse. Yeah. So it's now been at least five years since Meg was abused. In fact, some victims won't begin processing their pain until decades later. But eventually there comes a point where our bodies can't hold our trauma anymore and we fall apart. And for Meg, that was happening now. So I was kind of falling apart in college because I wasn't taking care of myself at all um, because I wanted to lose myself. I didn't think I was worthy of care. I didn't think that I was worthy of attention. I knew I was broken. And when I talked to other people just about their lives, I was like, holy cow, like that is not my experience in life. I, I lost so much, I lost my childhood. There's a lot of memories I can't remember because I think I just deadened myself. So in college, Meg became depressed, she became isolated, and she wasn't going to be able to pretend anymore. Meg was gonna have to tell somebody. But who could she tell? Stay with us. Here at LTN, we're all about helping people build better relationships. And we've actually created a brand new way to do that with our Say More conversation cards. Say More is a deck of 100 questions to kickstart engaging discussions. So there's silly things like, which famous cartoon character are you most like? And there's also serious things like, what has been your hardest goodbye in life? You can use our Say More cards with your family, your friends, on a date, at the office. My family and I have been using them at the dinner table, and I've learned things about my kids that I truly never knew before. To grab your own deck of Say More cards, go to lovethyneighborhood.org and click the store link at the top of the menu. And while you're there, grab a couple more decks. 
They make great gifts for Christmas or birthdays, and all proceeds go directly to support Love Thy Neighborhood. So go to lovethyneighborhood.org and click store and get ready to say more because better relationships are just a question away. Welcome back to the Love Thy Neighborhood podcast. I'm Jesse Eubanks. And I'm Rachel Zabo. Today's episode is Where the Gospel Meets Sexual Abuse. We've been following the story of Meg. She was abused by her youth pastor. She's now in college. And the effects of that abuse are hitting her hard. So in order to get help, she first is going to have to tell someone about her abuse. And one of the people she tells is a guy named Jake. So Jake and Meg went to the same college. That's where they met, and they had actually started dating. And in fact, Jake was pretty sure at this point that Meg was the woman he was going to marry. Like, he was head over heels for Meg. You know, there's just a charisma about her. She's a, she's just got so much. She, I recognize that she had so much strength and so much passion. So one night they're talking, and Jake brings up his ex-girlfriend. And he had actually broken up with her to start going out with Meg. And it turns out that his old girlfriend also had a history of sexual abuse in a different city, in a different church, by a different youth pastor. And so Jake expressed his feelings about that toward Meg. I essentially said, yeah, I said, well, it's good that I'm not in that relationship anymore anyway, because of all that history carries a lot of baggage. Oh, my gosh. Did he just say that basically people that that suffer sexual abuse, like they're just baggage to deal with? Yeah, essentially, that's what he's saying. Oh, Jake. Oh, what are you thinking? Yeah, well, in Jake's not so great defense, he actually was just repeating words that he had heard from his mom. I just parroted what my mom had said to me, having no idea that that was her story. Wait, so he had no idea that the same thing had happened to Meg? No. And, you know, of course, Meg is absolutely devastated. And I remember walking away from that conversation crushed because I thought this was the man I was going to marry. And all of a sudden, I was like, I can't, he can't marry me. Once he finds out about my baggage, he'll just think it's baggage. Like he has already labeled the stuff in my life as baggage. Well, after that conversation, Meg decided that one thing she was not going to be anymore was silent. I marched right back to him and I said, listen, this is what happened to me and you need to know it because if you want to be with me, this comes with me and it's not my fault that I have it. And for me, handing over the weight of that secret was humiliating. It was the scariest thing I ever did and holding my breath until his reaction was the longest, like, it was probably a second, but it felt like 10 years, seeing if he would still accept me or not. So what did Jake say? I was just, felt like the biggest idiot. I just repeated what my mom had said without ever really even thinking through it or, or processing it myself in a meaningful way. And, um, and so just the weight of that just rested in me. I, felt sick to my stomach, and I was just like, and I just told her, I said, I am so sorry. A response which Meg was not expecting at all. He was the first person in my life that looked me in the eyes with this strength and this anger and this gentleness all rolled into one and said, I'm sorry. And coming from a man, 
saying that he was sorry. That was such a part of my healing process that he understood. No one told him to do it, but he understood I needed to hear that. Everybody's healing process looks a little different, but for Meg, this moment was pivotal. And I started going to counseling and really understanding the depth of the, those cuts. It's like a million paper cuts and realizing the depth of influence and brokenness that the abuse brought into my life. So not long after that, Jake and Meg did get married. And so, you know, Jake was committed to walking with Meg through this healing process. But Jake didn't realize that walking with someone through their healing process of abuse, it wasn't going to look like he thought it would. First of all, there was confusion on my part because she would be so upset sometimes. She would be so checked out. I didn't know if I had done something or not. Did I, dis- did I disappoint her? Did I, have I hurt her? Have I done something inappropriate? Have I, what, you know, what have I done? There was a light that was gone from her eyes um, for months. I was kind of sucked into like a black hole of emotional pain. Um, I don't know if it was depression or just absolute grief. And honestly, for the first several years of their marriage, all Jake could really do was just be there and listen. There was a point where the lights came back on and then there'd be a period of time and then the lights would go back off for a little bit and then they come back on. So this process of, you know, the lights going off for Meg and then the lights coming back on and the lights going back off, this actually went on for three years. And then after three years, Jake finally noticed a shift in Meg. And it happened actually when Meg started telling her story to other abuse victims. But also when she began to share it publicly and uh, began to help walk other people that were further behind in the journey that she was in to speak hope to them and console them and let them know that they're not alone. And so that is when she was transitioning from being a victim to being an overcomer. In fact, therapist Colleen Ramser says that having the space and the safety to talk about their story is incredibly healing for victims. As soon as you speak it and you say it, um, there's something, there's a shift that happens in the body where it, it's now real. You know, I, I often consider it like taking my shoes off. I'm on holy ground. I'm incredibly privileged because this person has chosen to take a risk. And Jake feels privileged too. You know, not only to see Meg get better, but also because he's learned a lot from her. One of the important things that I've learned through all this is I'm broken too. And that whatever our story is, because we all have different brands of brokenness, everybody's got baggage. Not listening to someone is one of the most damaging things that you can do. Not taking it seriously enough is one of the most damaging things that you can do. You know, the unfortunate reality is that there are just uh, so many people with stories like Meg's. There's so many people who need us to just listen to them. But is it possible for us as the church to not just learn to listen to people's stories, but to learn to prevent them from happening in the first place? Uh, we'll remember Boz Chavijan. Yeah, prosecutor guy, Billy Graham's grandson. <laughs> yep, yep. Well, he seems to think so. I really think I need to take what I learned on the front lines of addressing this issue to go and train and educate and equip the church. 
So Boz is the founder of an organization called Grace, and Grace helps empower and train Christian communities to recognize, respond to, and prevent child abuse. They can help you know how to limit access to grooming. They can help you know what the reporting laws are, and they can give you counsel to help navigate this serious issue. There is a disconnect in many churches of understanding, first and foremost, that uh, these types of offenses are extremely serious crimes. So if you're listening to this episode, you're an adult. And part of the responsibility of being an adult is that we take care of the children that we're responsible for. If you're part of a church, make sure that you know and understand your church's policies on how they're going to protect the children in your life from sexual abuse. And if you don't know that policy, go find it. Or if you find out that your church does not have one, then forcefully advocate that your church adopt one. And Boz can help with that. Abuse survivors are, for the very first time, sitting with professing Christians who are actually listening to them, affirming them, not opening their Bible and preaching at them, sometimes not even praying with them, just hearing them. The need for that, not only the need to get to the truth, but the need to dignify these uh, these amazing but wounded people with hearing their story, affirming it, and doing something about it. So, Rachel, how is Meg doing today? Yeah, so Meg is doing well. You know, it's amazing that Meg is actually still part of a church and she's growing in her faith. It took me a long time to love the church. Because I just, I really hated the church proper for a long, long time. And in fact, she and her husband, Jake, actually now work in full-time ministry. And one of the things that they're both able to do is help to educate and equip that ministry to prevent sexual abuse. Because Meg believes that God is doing something with her story. I'm not saying this was his plan at all, but I'm saying how he's made beauty from ashes, truly and how he's used my story um, to help others, hopefully my story to help prevent other young women and young men from having to have any kind of experience like that. And hopefully um, using that as well to, to change the church into a place that can be safe. If there's any place that should be safe, it should be our churches. Abuse of power is nothing new to religious institutions. You know, Jesus was betrayed and murdered and crucified by one of the greatest religious institutions of the first century. Jesus knows what it is to be taken advantage of, what it is to to be beaten, to be naked, to be shamed publicly. Jesus identifies with victims. Jesus identifies with those that have felt the cruel, wicked hand of sin against them. He knows what that is like. And so God has great empathy for those that have been victimized. But the other thing is this. God, he will judge fairly. And a day of judgment will come for those who choose to abuse innocent people. In Ezekiel 34, God is against the shepherds who abuse the sheep. But later in the chapter, he says this to the sheep, to those who have been abused, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. And I, I will feed them justice. 
If you've benefited at all from this podcast, please help us out by leaving a review wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. Your review will help other people discover our show. Special thanks to our interviewees for this episode, Meg Hostetter, Jake Hostetter, Colleen Ramser, and Boz Chavijan. Special thanks also to Ministry Safe. Our senior producer and host is Jesse Eubanks. Our co-host today was Rachel Zabo, who's also our media director and producer, and who I overheard the other day telling everybody how much she loves Carmen. I just parroted what my mom had said to me. Anna Tran is our audio engineer. Music comes from Lee Rosevere, Pottington Bear, and Blue Dot Sessions. Theme music and commercial music by Murphy DX. If you want a hands-on experience of missions in our modern times, come serve with Love Thy Neighborhood. We offer internships for young adults ages 18 to 30. Through the areas of service, community, and discipleship, you'll grow in your faith and life skills. Learn more at lovethyneighborhood.org. Which of these was a neighbor to the man in need? The one who showed mercy. Jesus tells us, go and do likewise. Likewise.